Hello and greetings from Holland. Welcome to my podcast, which has a focus on parenting children with Down syndrome. I'm so incredibly glad and excited you're here. I'm Shauna Graham, and my daughter Bailey is the inspiration behind this podcast. She's currently 11 years old and in the fifth grade. My hope is to share resources and hope for other parents and caregivers. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to episode number six. I am so glad you're here. I really have so much fun um, creating episodes for this podcast, and so I am so thankful you're tuning in from wherever you are. And super exciting news, we have actually, this podcast has been heard on five different continents, which is just crazy to think about. Um, You know, you just kind of start something hoping to help people in your area, and it really does spread. And so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing with others. I really appreciate it. And I love being able to help and connect. And if you ever do want to connect with me directly, my Facebook page is Graham Party of Seven. And again, my name is Shauna Graham. So you can definitely find me pretty much on any social media channel, uh, Facebook, uh, actually, I have Twitter, but it's not connected to Grand Party of Seven. But Facebook, Instagram, I really love TikTok, which I realize most adults don't, but I actually find it helpful and hilarious. So, okay, but get back to the point. Today is actually the first of two episodes that will focus on behavior intervention plans. And if you do have never heard of behavior intervention plans, you're in luck because today it's going to be really from my perspective and how it's impacted Bailey. And then the next episode will feature our our school psychologist who really helped us get on the straight and narrow um, as we were going down this path. So if you remember back to our inclusion episode, I briefly touched on behavior intervention plans and I shared part of Bailey's plan with you. It was part of a much larger episode and so I didn't really go a lot in depth. So that's what I want to do today. I'm going to go really in depth to what a behavior plan is, when and why it's used, the steps involved in requesting one, and then lastly, I want to share Bailey's plan as somewhat of a case study. This will all be given from a parent's perspective, which is clearly what I am. And I know I mentioned it in my intro, but just as a reminder, Bailey is 11 years old, and she's currently in the fifth grade. And the behavior plan was actually put into effect when she was in third grade. And in all honesty, it probably could have been put into place sooner than that, probably first grade, but we didn't really get to that point until we were in third grade. But my main goal in sharing her story is to really help other people. Because sometimes as parents, I don't know about you, but you have these feelings of inadequacy if your children need behavior plans or they're misbehaving. And so we somehow turn that around to ineffective parenting. And I'm just here to tell you that is not the case. (laughs) So putting more tools in place so that our kids can learn and grow in an inclusive environment should always be the goal. And this is really just another tool for us to help our children get there. And so if you're having any self-doubts or if you're having any feelings of inadequacy, don't. That's my that's my TED talk in 10 seconds. But I kind of, again, want to dive deeper into what the behavior plan is. So getting started, what exactly is a behavior intervention plan? It can also be referred to as a BIP, which is just BIP. There's a lot of acronyms in the SPED world. And so I just feel like it's important to also reference what it could be called by others. But essentially, it's a written plan that teaches and rewards good behavior, keyword being good behavior. Um, So often it can be referred um, or referenced, excuse me, due to misbehaving or trouble causing. But I think looking at it from that perspective sets the tone for the entire process, both with the teachers and educators who will be enforcing it as well as your child. So this is definitely not a one size fits all approach as all behaviors are different. So kids have different behavior issues for different reasons. And so it is called a behavior intervention plan. But one thing that I really like that our school did was call it a positive support plan. But essentially, similar to an IEP, it's individualized to the child. 
And it's a document that promotes consistency. And consistency for Bailey was the entire point of the plan. And we'll talk about more of that later when we get to the strategies. But in Bailey's case, she was refusing to transition from one educational setting to the next. And most often, it was a transition from recess to reading, which seems pretty logical for most kids, to be honest. They want to be outside doing other things and not not being in reading blocks. And in Bailey's case, her reading block could be up to 90 minutes. And so it was a long time. And they did break that up. There were a lot of different strategies that are used. And I do feel like that reading program works. But for Bailey, there were some challenges that we just needed to work through. And so she would just refuse to transition. Um, really think hostage type nego- negotiations from on top of the monkey bars. So she would crawl up there because she knew they couldn't do anything to get her down. So in schools, they can't touch children to remove them from the environment. So she would just sit up there as long as she wanted. (laughs) And so they would bring out the principal. They brought out the superintendent in one case. And ultimately, it didn't matter because when Bailey is being stubborn, it doesn't actually matter who it is. She isn't doing it. And so if the president himself would have walked out onto the playground, it wouldn't have mattered. It was a hard no. And so we tried so many different things prior to the behavior intervention plan, but none of it really worked. Um, I would I remember getting phone calls going up to the school and talking her down. And so I could forcefully, and I say forcefully loosely, I would just kind of grab her and bring her down. But the teachers couldn't do that. And I didn't want Bailey to feel like if she refused to come in, they would just call mom because that's not promoting a great system either. And I wanted to help the school to have the resources they needed to to make it work. So again, we'll get to Bailey's here in a second. But back to the basics of the behavior intervention plan, all of them have similar parts that are included. The first similar to an IEP is who is on the team on Bailey's and we'll get to that. But it's pretty much all of her classroom teachers were in there. Um, Any class that she transitioned to the sped director, the principal, um, and the superintendent, our school is small. So all of those people would get involved. Now, in larger schools, it's probably not the case that there would be that many people just because it's larger. But in Bailey's case, she interacted with these people regularly. So in addition to who's on the team, it would also include target behaviors, which is really just the behavior that you're targeting. (laughs) And so in Bailey's case, it was she would refuse to transition. And third, it would include goal behaviors. So there should be specific statements that aren't overly complicated for anyone to understand. And for Bailey, again, I mentioned the first one, but her target behaviors were one, she would refuse to transition from one educational environment to another. And two, she would then refuse to complete her assigned work. So those two went really closely. Like if she refused to come in from recess, and then she was 30 minutes late to reading, she would be behind and then she would be annoyed. And so not only would she not want to participate when she arrived to the class, she wouldn't want to do any of the assignments at, th- at that time. And so in my mind, those two things went really closely together. So if you could solve one, you could solve the other. But the next thing it included is goal behaviors. And these should be worded very similar to the target behaviors, only tweaking it positively. So re-looking at Bailey's target goal of she she refuses to transition from one environment to another, to another, her goal behavior would be she will transition from one educational environment to another. And like we discussed, her second behavior was she would refuse to complete her assigned work. So we turned that into a goal just saying she will complete her assigned work. I sometimes think there's so many laws and regulations that are needed. I'm absolutely not saying they're not needed. But sometimes I feel like the IEP gets so complex that you can't, it's a 26 page document. And there's times in our case, it's a 26 page document. And there's sometimes that I have to go back and reference it. And I think if I'm her mother, and I am the one who is most involved in making sure she is getting the services and support that she needs, 
how do how do I expect everybody else to follow that? And so that's something that I've talked with her teachers on an ongoing basis. And there has to be a certain level of trust ultimately. But what I like, again, about the behavior intervention plan, it's a little bit, it's shorter and it's a little bit more straightforward. I just think it's very easy to overcomplicate a situation and it doesn't need to be that way. So the next part of the plan is a table that really lays out the game plan for each target behavior. It has the target behavior behavior listed and then along with positive or proactive strategies that will be used along with what the staff's response will be. And this is important because this document, again, is shorter and it travels from class to class. So every single person that is coming into contact with her has reviewed it and knows how they should respond. And it's important to note at this point also that in Bailey's case, we felt we knew what was causing the behavior issues. I had actually been talking about the exact situation with the school for about a year, and I didn't feel like I was getting the response I was hoping for. So if you're not sure what's causing your child's behavior, the school can, or you for that matter, can request, it's called a functional behavior assessment. Um, And I'll refer to that as an FBA just because functional behavior assessment gets to be a mouthful. But there's a couple ways to get there. But in Bailey's case, I felt like she was refusing to transition because there was so much change. And this is a shout out to Paris because Paris plays such an important role in kiddos that are on an IEP or in Bailey's case, her entire day. I wrote a whole blog post about this, actually. I mean, they're there. They talk your children off a cliff when they're upset. They can reason with them. They can help break stuff down. They're usually the person that your child trusts the most just because they're there all day. And in Bailey's case, she has she's had a one-to-one pair since kindergarten, really to keep her on track. Um, we have worked on and again, that could be another podcast, but we have worked on the pair stepping away and helping other kids in the room so that Bailey doesn't have this crutch with her the whole time and doesn't become overly reliant on another person to take care of what she needs to take care of. But she does need help. And there was a time in, it started in second grade, actually, she had seven different paras in a week. There's a whole bunch of issues with that from a parent perspective. One, Bailey doesn't trust any of them. And she's a very much a relationship kind of gal. And so when she doesn't trust you, um, and nothing because of anything you've done, she just doesn't know you. But when she doesn't trust you, she will not, she will not be helpful. (laughs) And so she won't transition. Um, She will frequently have accidents. So she's been, we're fortunate Bailey's been potty trained since she was about five. Um, But she will have accidents. Um, She will be stubborn. At one point, she had someone convinced she couldn't hold a pencil when she had been writing her first and last name for about a year. And so I always tell people she will do what you expect of her, however high or low you set that bar. And so my irritation with a constant revolving door of paras is that nobody knows her. So they don't know how to interact with her, which I can only imagine is incredibly frustrating for them. She doesn't trust them. So she's not working hard. Nobody knows what her current level is. So if she refuses, to do something, it is what it is. And I, again, I don't want to get on a soapbox here, but I feel like a lot of times with sped kids, there's a subconscious bias that you think that they maybe can't can't do things or can't achieve certain things. And that is not meant to be a diss. I am not trying to be critical of people that work with kids with disabilities, but I cannot tell you the number of times I've heard we are surprised at what she knew, or we are surprised that she knows that. And I know that's coming from a good place, but that is so incredibly frustrating from a parent perspective, because why? Why are you shocked? Are you shocked that anybody else in her class knows these things? Or is it just Bailey? And so it accentuates my point of why changing Paris, for example, does not work. And so whenever she would have a refusal, I would say, who was her para today? And then at some point, like that's that's why it's happening. And it's not meant to be an excuse. But you get to the point where you're telling them what doesn't work. And if they continue to do it, I'm, I'm just not going to I'm not going to help you deal with this behavior. And so 
Again, not meant to be a diss on the school either, because I think the school has worked very hard. I think it is hard to keep paras at times. There's There seems to be a lot of turnover in that field. And so I think, again, it's just it's a challenging situation all the way around. But in Bailey's case, the constant revolving door of paras was causing some of the refusals and the fact that reading she was kind of bored with. So it was kind of the perfect storm of two different situations. But I digress. Okay. So again, we knew what was causing Bailey's issue. But if you don't know what's causing the issue, or not everyone's on the same page, an FBA can be super helpful in figuring out why your student or why your child is acting a certain way. And it represents an attempt to look beyond the obvious interpretation of the bad behavior to determine what function it may be serving the child. So quite often, understanding why a child behaves the way they do is the first step to developing effective strategies that prevent that behavior. And that, my friends, is the entire key to the behavior plan, in my opinion. How can we actually prevent the behavior? I was told early on, and this was from a close family friend who actually was Bailey's kindergarten teacher and is currently her tutor, that in general, behaviors are a form of communication. So what are they trying to tell us? Kids are not inherently difficult, but something is causing them to act in a certain way, and it really should be all of our jobs to figure out exactly what that is. So knowing that, what does the FBA look like? Again, this is not a process I've been a part of, but it is a process that I researched as we were looking at the behavior plan. So I'm going to give it from a more textbook perspective. And then next week, when we interview the school psychologist, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit deeper. But the process typically involves documenting the antecedent, which is what comes before the behavior, the actual behavior itself, and then the consequence. So it's like before the behavior, and then after. And it's usually done over a number of weeks. Um, It can happen quicker and it can go longer. But it's done by interviewing the teachers, the parents, and anyone who interacts with your child. So that could be the para. The FBA also evaluates if a child's disability is affecting their behavior. So it may involve manipulating the environment, which would be an accommodation that you can you know, find in an IEP. But that kind of brings me to another interesting point. So just because you have an IEP does not mean you need a behavior intervention plan. And just because you have a behavior intervention plan does not mean you need an IEP. Those are two separate tools, but they can be used together or they can be used separately. So I think that's important to distinguish. There are kids that have behavior issues that do not have disabilities. And there's kids with disabilities that don't have behavior issues. So the way I look at it is there's all of these tools in this tool chest, and you just kind of pick out what you need so that it it benefits your child the most. Ideally, the behavior intervention plan and FBA, if needed, will be done soon after the behavior begins. In a good majority of cases, however, that isn't always the case, and it didn't happen with Bailey either, and I kind of alluded to that earlier. Um, but it wasn't due to lack of communication between the school and our family. We were we really had a constant flow of communication through a Google document, through phone calls, and through emails, but we really didn't get the behavior intervention plan in place, which, again, our school refers to as a positive support plan, until we got the school psychologist involved. And I'm telling you, if you are looking for a sign on if I should get the school psychologist psychologist involved, let this be your sign. (laughs) Because they specialize in this and they are just genuinely great people. Now, everyone in the school, I feel like is very helpful. So so I don't mean it from that perspective, but school psychologists will specialize in behavior. And so they sometimes have techniques that aren't 
currently being used, and they have a way to document what's needed so that people follow it. And similar to an IEP, a behavior intervention plan is a legally binding document. So it's one more person on the team that can help make sure that things are working as they should, are being followed. And I really developed a a level of trust with our school psychologist, um, just from being honest with what was happening, getting her feedback. And again, finding someone on your team that you really trust is important. Now, I have a level of trust with everybody in our school system, don't get me wrong, but there are people that you feel more comfortable having a difficult conversation with, and that's normal and that's okay. And I would really encourage you that if you find that person, really talk to them about whatever is bothering you because it it is a challenge. And I think sometimes as a parent of a child with special needs, you kind of feel alone and maybe you're the only one dealing with it, but you're not the only one dealing with it. And sometimes getting, a, again, a third party involved is helpful. And in my case, I really felt like that was our school psychologist. But we were taking steps and trying to make progress, but something, again, about a legally binding document where everyone in the room um, had to help create it makes a difference. And again, I'm not trying to come off as negative about our school because I do feel like they're trying as hard as they can. Bailey is one of 50-something kids in her class, so she isn't the only one on an IEP, nor is she the only one on a behavior plan. I do fully believe teachers are doing the best they can, but they are only one person, and in most cases, a child with an IEP has multiple members of a team working together to deliver the best possible experience. So there has to be crystal clear documentation on how to make that happen. Otherwise, you're just hoping for the best. And I don't know about you, but by the time you get like the fourth phone call in a week, you're sick of hoping for the best and you want some crystal clear guidance on how to move forward. My last thoughts on the FBA is just that it's essentially a time for the school to study your child and accumulate data so that it can be used for a plan. And they're doing this anyway, but it's kind of in a more structured environment and you're getting super specific data. So by the time they come to you with this behavior intervention plan, they should have several instances of what happened. And again, it's what happened right before that, what was the behavior and what was the consequence. And I think the more that you can have those times laid out, the easier it is to see a pattern and the easier it is to address it. And sometimes people think they might know what the pattern is, but they don't. And we've we've thought of that too. Like there's been times I'm convinced that X is what's causing this behavior and really it's Y. And so Again, it's just the data set and then everybody looking at the data. And sometimes it's hard to sit in a room, and I kind of referenced this earlier, and have people talk about how your kid's misbehaving, but you need to remember it's a form of communication and they're trying to tell us something. So it's really more like a puzzle. And remember, it's not a reflection on your parenting. Sometimes we just need extra help to get to the endpoint that we're wanting. Okay, so back to Bailey's behavior intervention plan, which again, we refer to as a positive support plan. And I just, I know I've said this a million times on this podcast already, but I just love the positivity component because it's really all in a name. But back to the real life example, I just wanted to share the meat and potatoes of her plan. So again, we have the targeted behavior of refusing to transition. But I feel like the proactive strategies is kind of where it's at. And so these are what was written in the document. And I I will actually go through both of them. But the first one is building a relationship with Bailey. And so I had referenced that earlier, trust is important. And so if there's a constant change of people who are working with her, and she doesn't know who they are, it is not going to be successful. And so the relationship part is huge. And that is done through consistency. Some kids do really well with change and others don't. And I realize there are factors outside of the school's control, such as when paras call in sick or they need time off. But if we can avoid this constant change of paras, it's helpful. And that's really kind of what that um, strategy was targeted for. 
The second um, positive strategy that we used was maintaining a five to one ratio of positive statements to negative statements, which could theoretically work for any child. But Bailey really struggles when she feels like she's disappointed someone. She'll shut down, she'll start to cry. And those are things as she's gotten older have gotten better. But it's really, she really does well with positive encouragement. And so even if, you know, she has five problems on a piece of paper, like, hey, you've done one, we only have four more. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but she just likes and she benefits from. Um, that type of encouragement. The third one, which seems pretty obvious, but we still listed ensuring all IEP accommodations are in place. And so we had made noted several accommodations in her IEP during reading, such as how she tracks, if someone can hide the sentence above and help her track below, um, timing. There were a lot of pretty unique um, things written into her plan. And we later found out she had some vision issues that we weren't aware of. But when there's a constant change of paras, not everybody knows what those accommodations are. And that in and of itself creates an issue. Now, I realize, again, the IEP is a legally binding document. I think it's important to give grace at times because there are changes that are without, you know, outside people's control and they're doing the best they can. I don't think anyone inherently is just choosing not to follow the IEP. I think it just happens over the course of the day. And so, but it was important to put that in there because I think for reading specifically, if she was going and the parent didn't know the support that was needed and the teacher wasn't making sure that it was happening, it was providing a challenge. So there's that. (laughs) Um, Number four, utilizing a daily schedule each day. It is really important for Bailey to know what, what the plan is and if there's going to be an alteration to that plan. And so if there was a time where there was going to be a pep rally for say, or if there was going to be some sort of presentation in in the gym, she wanted to know that ahead of time. And so they would do really well at giving her a schedule or communicating that morning, like, hey, during math, we're actually going to go to the gym for 30 minutes. And it just gives her time to process. Sometimes she's not even asking questions about it. She just wants to know. And really, I kind of think we're all that way. Like if you go to a meeting and you don't have an agenda and you don't know what's next, it kind of causes some anxiety. And so just being able to communicate with her was super important. We also added utilizing first then language and just visuals to break down the schedule. And I've actually used this at home with my other children as well. First, we have to do this, then we have to do then we get to do that. So we built in a lot of breaks throughout Bailey's day. And at first I was against the idea of adding in breaks, but she's going to take them anyway. (laughs) So I think that's the important thing to remember. Her refusals are a break. And so if you can kind of reward her with breaks, then I think it just works better. So if we said, okay, Bay, first we're going to read this story. It's going to be about 15 minutes and then we can take a five minute brain break. And a brain break could be anything. The school did such an amazing job of having different activities that she could choose from and making it fun to keep her motivated. So I also do that at home. Again, I have four-year-old twins and we do that a lot. Hey, if you can pick up the living room, then we get to go outside. So it's like telling them again, the behavior you want them to, what, what behavior you want them to do and then giving them a reward. We would also, um, we also put into the plan pre-teaching or preparing her in advance for changes in schedule, staff, or expectation. And this would happen, really, this was kind of targeting that para change. And so the school worked hard to expose her to different people. And so as she got older, the, the para changes were less dramatic for her. 
But if she if we knew that a pair was going to be gone tomorrow, the pair would tell her, hey, bae, I'm going to be gone tomorrow, but I'll be back the next day. And here's who's going to be with you. And having this writ- written in the behavior plan, I really kind of feel like I don't want to say forced in a bad way. But if there was going to be a pair change, they would communicate it with Bailey or they would call me. And even if it was that morning, if it was before she got to school, and that would happen, they would send me a text or send me an email. Hey, so and so is ill today. So she's going to be with Jane throwing a name. <laughs> and then I could tell Bay, and then she would be fine. But she just she doesn't like spur of the moment. And we have tried, I, I don't want to say that as a parent, I just go with what works for Bailey all the time. I do try to get her outside of her comfort zone. I do try to make changes. But there's a time and a place for all of that. And consistent changes every single day when we know it's something she doesn't like, it's just ultimately not going to work. Other proactive strategies that we used were offering choices or options when appropriate. So, hey, you can choose between A and B, or you can choose between A, B, and C. And so having her be part of her decision making was huge. Also, we talked about maintaining consistency with the implementation plan. Following through on reinforcement and consequences, also a big thing. So if you tell Bailey there's a consequence and then she doesn't have a consequence, she's going to remember that. Like this girl does not forget. And so I think that's important. And I talked earlier about some different communication documents that we had through the school, whether it was email or text, or we had a Google document where anyone could type. And the school got really good at letting me know right away if there was a behavior. So if it was kind of a minor behavior or like, hey, she had a five-minute refusal, that's just something they would write in this Google document that I would check every day. If it was a major behavior, I told them to call me. But the important thing was they knew what the behavior was and they would communicate it with me daily. And Bailey knew that. So they would even sometimes warn her, like, if you don't want me to have to tell mom, you need to listen. And a lot of times that in of itself worked. But if it didn't, when she would come home and I would check, I would call it Google Docs. And it, I, I still love it. Bailey would call it Goo Goo. <laughs> Don't check Goo Goo Docs, mom. So that was like the key if I would have forgotten that day um, that something happened. But she knew and there was a minor consequence at home. I'm not saying I gave her this insane punishment, but I would, you know, take her iPad away or I would make her go to bed early or she wouldn't get a dessert after supper. Something small so that she remembered. And nine times out of 10, she had a better day the next day. So I think the follow through is important. And again, I've touched on that really throughout, but that consistent communication with the school is really important. There's that analogy, like the squeaky wheel gets the grease, (laughs) but I feel like there was a time in second grade, I was literally calling every day and you kind of feel like a pain in the butt. And then ultimately the teachers are glad. I feel like they're happy and glad that you want to be involved. They are relieved that you're addressing the behavior. They're relieved that you're being supportive of them. And it can really be a great team effort. And again, I know I've talked about some of the struggles that I've had with the school, but overall, I'm really happy with how things are going, how well they listen and interact and make changes when when necessary. But there are going to be uncomfortable conversations, and there are going to be concerns you have, and you just have to tactfully state that. And there's been times I feel like my mama bear comes out a little bit. It's hard for me to not bring emotion into it because it's my child, but I have to try to remember like what is going to make her the most successful. The last piece that Bailey has in her positive support plan is the accommodation section. And so this will look pretty similar to the IEP, but if there's anything specific that we need or we need to adapt the environment in any way, this is where that's going to be written. So the schedule was in here. Um, she also likes to carry on a clipboard, and so she was able to do that. Different notes about how they were going to reinforce the consequences, what the consequences would be, and just different break opportunities. And so this is a document that it's a living, breathing document. So there's just 
there's changes that you can kind of make on the fly. Whereas like with an IEP, that's something that you're going to have to call a meeting for, which is, is super. But sometimes I feel like this support plan, can we can make tweaks in the moment and it can make a big difference. And so I like having something like that. There are a lot of different proactive strategies that can be used. And I know that I shared a bunch in Bailey's plan. There's a few other ones that I just kind of, again, wanted to highlight. Avoiding distractions is a big thing. Limiting choices, um, simplifying instructions, using goals and rewards. I think silent signals are helpful if they know that we don't have to necessarily call them out. Um, Giving students a task to do, but they kind of feel like is a reward as well. Um, taking a break, positive phrasing. So we kind of touched on some of those, but there's a ton of different strategies that can be used. And there's a, a lot of research out there as well. And the teachers are also going to be in the know on that. So if you think you know what's going to work, definitely bring that up because you know your child better than anyone else. But just know that the teachers, the school psychologist, and the internet, <laughs> for that matter, have a lot of different strategies um, for behavior if you're looking for that. Moving on, I think we've talked a lot about behavior intervention plans today, as well as behavioral assessments that might be needed. But I guess there's also the question, what if you don't know if there's a problem? And I've talked to several parents um, over the course of the years that we've been in Central City and online and oversharing our life, I'd like to joke. Um, But one comment that was made to me that will stay with me forever. It actually kind of haunts me. Um, It's And it's why I really like to advocate why I'm going to be going through some lay advocacy training with a disability rights group here in Nebraska and why I started this podcast. So I asked a mom, um, and this was a few years ago, I said, how's it going for your little one? Um, And she has a similar diagnosis to Bailey. And she said, I think pretty good. Um, They haven't called me about her acting out yet. And I'm telling you, my heart (laughs) broke (laughs) right then and there. And we have to be comfortable pushing for the bar to be set high Um, We have to be comfortable asking for communication to come on a consistent basis, and we have to be comfortable working through issues. And I just think, you know, sometimes as a parent, myself included, you just feel like you're a giant pain to the school. And I literally have felt that way most days. And I feel like there was a time in elementary school, and I referenced that, where you're constantly calling about something, you know, whether it's the educational material, whether it's refusals, whether it's having an accident, whether it was she's not eating her lunch, you name it, I called about it. And you feel like you're constantly complaining. And this is a question I want to ask the school psychologist next week as well. Um, you know, how do you how do you change that? But we have to change that narrative. It is not complaining. It's advocating. And ultimately, if you don't do it, who will? Um, short story, the answer is no one. <laughs> um, you have you have the biggest ability to impact your child's educational experience, which will have a direct impact on their future success. So if there's anything that I can tell you, it's do not feel like you are being a pain. It's honestly a learning curve for everyone. It's a learning curve for the teachers. It's a learning curve for the case manager. It's a learning curve for the para. It's a learning curve for the parent. And so we just, we have to be, we can't just be okay with, well, they haven't said she's doing anything wrong. Like we need to demand, and I don't say demand like they, they wouldn't give it to us anyway, but we have to expect them to learn alongside their typically developing peers. And we have to know that there's going to be bumps in the road and that we can work through that. So if you are not sure if there's a problem, I actually found a great worksheet from understood.org. And it's something that you can actually take with you to parent-teacher conferences 
Or, I mean, you could also set up a meeting ahead of time with your teacher, which I think is, is very helpful. Um, but I'll post the link on my on my Facebook page, which is Grand Party of Seven. Um, please come find me over there and share with me your successes and your struggles because we can get through this. And if there's anything that I can do to help or any tools that I can give you, you know, I would I would love to do that. This is not a commercial for understood.org. I am not associated with them in any way. But since I'm going to be sharing a document they created, I just wanted to share a little bit more about them. So since 2014, Understood has served millions of families of kids who learn and think differently. In 2012, our workplace program was created and has helped thousands of people with all types of disabilities find meaningful employment and inclusive opportunities. So their programs are for families, educators, and young adults, um, and they focus on empowering people who learn and think differently and those who support them offering customized, accessible resources and a compassionate community. One of the things they have is a parent-teacher conference worksheet. It's just something to get your mind thinking. I'm not suggesting you take the entire worksheet with you, but it kind of gives some questions to ask if you're unsure on where to start. And so some areas to, to, to discuss on the sheet. So one is homework. You know, do they understand it? Do they finish on time? Do they turn it in completed? The next talks about class participation. One talks about academics. Another talks about social and emotional and how they get along with others, how they get along with the teacher, and how they handle frustration. And then it also gives some more questions like, what will they be learning? They have, you know, my child has some strengths. Do you have a good sense of what they're great at? Um, Is there anything I can help to do at home? Is there anything more specific I need to do? Should I ask the school to evaluate my child? So just some question points. And then if they, if your child has an IEP or a 504 plan, which Bailey has an IEP, but you can just ask, you know, do they have a copy of it? Do you have any concerns? And this is my favorite question on the document. Is there anything not in the plan that would help my child have the better experience in your class? I think when teachers know you want to be helpful and you want to create a solution and you want to be helpful to them, it's a whole different narrative than why aren't you doing this for my child, if if that makes sense. So they are trying their best. I have no doubt about that. Um, And so I just, I I think a question like that really opens it up. But I will put a link to that document on my page um, so that you can find it there. Whew, we made it. Um, I realize that is a ton of information, but my goal today was to share with you from my perspective why a behavior plan is important. And again, the positive impact it's made on Bailey and could potentially have on your child if they don't have one yet. But our next episode, I'm super amped about. We are bringing in an expert. And so Hannah Wagner is our school psychologist, and she has been instrumental in Bailey's success. And she's going to really help us take a closer look at all things behavior intervention plans and FBAs and really give us a more clear look on how they can be implemented and followed. And I am so excited to share her with the world, (laughs) literally, because I just think she has made a a huge difference on Bailey's trajectory in school and her ability to transition and her ability to get everybody on the same page. So super excited for that. Um, And I will definitely be um, advertising that episode as it gets closer. But thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you all have a great week.